Well, welcome everyone to the new episode of Biking Brokers with your host, Miles Romney and Chris Merrill. So this week, I have been waiting all week to be able to have this phone call with uh, two amazing people from Granger Medical. So Chris, who are we talking to today? Today, we are talking with Claire and Adam. Claire is the COO and Adam, we've decided his title's just so long that, I mean, to even talk about it seems hard, but... Um, Adam is over population health and a lot of other things. Um, Granger Medical is, if you're not familiar with them, one of the, they're one of the largest Utah-based physician-owned clinics. Um, they have 28 locations. They go from Bountiful to Payson to Sandy to Tooele, uh, 170 providers, 29 specialties. Claire, Adam, anything I'm missing on that? We are about half primary care, about half specialists, and yep, recently opened an office in Park City, so you pretty much covered it. I did not know the Park City one. Wow, that's pretty cool. They're trying to catch all those skiers. (laughs) So we have a a doctor up there, asthma and allergy, uh, Dr. Hendershot. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. So Adam, I just sort of blew past your title. What is your actual title? Uh, Director of Payer Relations and Business Services. And so within that, population health uh, sort of rolls up in there. Um, so I'm responsible for our payer contracting, credentialing, uh, population health, uh, as well as our uh, accountable care organization, um, which we recently joined a national ACO, the Accountable Care Organization, or TACO, um, which includes multiple states uh, and will have 90,000 Medicare beneficiaries in it. That may be well, one of the best acronyms. <laughs> it's, it's almost as good as our first one, which was PACU, uh, which we stole <laughs> from the hospitals. And then, yeah, so it's definitely up there. Well, there you go. So, well, let's start with, um, you know, Granger, you guys do a lot of things. Uh, what do you guys think sets Granger apart? I mean, what makes you unique? I think that seems as good a place to start as any. I would love to answer that. And Adam, please weigh in. But what makes us unique is that we are truly physician-owned, physician-led. The physicians that and providers that join Granger make their decisions for the clinics. And that can look anything like the hours and days they practice, the length of the appointment times, uh, how they provide that care, the supplies they use. They make all of the decisions for their clinics. So really, Granger Medical administratively payer relations, we bind them together, but they are practicing individual practices. So that's what makes us unique and what draws the majority of the physicians and providers to us. Nice. And you guys seem to be growing like crazy. I mean, it seems to be a model that's working really, really well, both on the the patient side and the provider side. Yeah. So, um, well, let's start. Our hope today really was to cover a couple of things. The first is we really want to talk about primary care. And um, so let's just get to the elephant in the room. Um, how has COVID impacted you guys? How does it change how you've delivered care currently? And then let's talk about you know looking forward. Sure. And Adam, let's um, do a split on this one because it's changed both the delivery in the clinics, but it has also really changed how population health programs work and the delivery of care in the homes. So Adam, if you're all right with that, I'll talk a little bit about the clinic side and then if you'll weigh in on the home care because it is really important. So on the clinic side, uh, we never shut down the clinics. We did 
implement everything that everyone else did nationwide with the plexiglass and the PPE and then dealt with the shortages and things like that. We never ran out. Uh, it was a close call some days. One of the major things that happened for us, and I think Chris, when we were talking uh, prior to the call starting, you mentioned that you thought that this just accelerated some of the things that were already in process. And I agree with you. And one of those, to me, the primary um, item that it accelerated was telehealth. Telehealth was sort of dangling out there. People didn't know what to do with it. Payers were uncomfortable with it. Maybe the providers were a little uncomfortable. The patients were a little uncomfortable and getting a little bit more comfortable. And it really accelerated that we launched telehealth within one week of the COVID pandemic breakout. Well, that's a quick turnaround. We have an amazing IT team. I cannot say enough about them. Uh, our IT director, Gil, has a motto of his own and it's how do we get to yes? And he really shown uh, that that was a true motto and they practice what they preach uh, when we implemented that. We implemented telehealth. We implemented a telehealth hotline because patients didn't know how to log in. People had questions about the security of it. Providers were having to go home and didn't have the bandwidth. So not only did Gil and his team implement it within the administrative side, they implemented it to happen where providers were able to practice safely and then patients also were receiving that safe care. So on that virtual care, what has been, what was like the biggest pushback on the providers that held them from getting on board to where that changed? I mean, obviously they had to change, but what's kind of changed on their end to where they're embracing it more? Well, I think that it wasn't necessarily just for our providers and that they weren't embracing it. And Adam, I'm going to need you to wait in here, but being physician owned and led and being independent means that we are really on our own for revenue. So our physicians and providers, I have never thought of a better way to say this. And I really hesitate on a podcast that people might hear, but we eat what we kill. So there's <laughs> <laughs> from a medical carrier, but we'll yeah. I, I don't know how else to say it. If someone listening has an idea and wants to message me, I'm not hard to find on LinkedIn or at Granger, but we have exactly what we deliver in the care model. And therefore we're very careful to do things such as make sure that we're not only billing appropriately, but we are capturing what we are eligible for reimbursement. And it's a, it can sound like we have the ability to do things that might line our pockets. And I'm gonna bridge over to Adam in this and he can speak to the numbers. But one of the things that I asked upon my interview was, well, how does it look when a group of independent providers actually owns their own ancillary services division, including lab and imaging. Well, lab and imaging is, those are two of the areas that drive up healthcare costs. So maybe too many labs, too much imaging, non-necessary procedures. I'm not calling anyone out that does it with malintent, of course, but it makes you very careful about how that affects the patient and the care they receive. Well, one of the questions that I had for some of the board members when I interviewed was, how does that look at Granger? Because that's a sticky widget. And they were able to tell me that we were in the top 10 of lowest cost per Medicare patient in the country. So at the time I interviewed, we were number six. Um, I think that was in 2015. In 2016, we landed at number eight out of the top 10. Well, you're not lining your pockets if you are the top 10 lowest cost in the country out of something like 480 plus ACOs. 
they're practicing what they preach to. They're trying to deliver and are delivering care that's careful for the patient and right for the patient and cost effective. And then Adam, since you manage the population health and, and ACO portion, could you speak to that further? Yeah, and so I would say that it wasn't necessarily providers not wanting to do telehealth. I think the big challenge we had was we weren't gonna get compensated for telehealth if we rolled it out before this. Um, and as we kind of looked at it, there was prior to COVID, there were really only four payers in our market that were uh, allowing for telehealth to occur. Um, and so in order to provide those services, prior we were being asked to take a reduction in, in what we would get in the office. And, and really with the visit, there, there's not much of a difference between what's offered in the office to the telehealth visit. Um, and so it, it made it difficult in the past to be able to really do those services. Uh, looking forward, uh, what's been really interesting for me on the contracting side is a lot of our payers are starting to shift and include telehealth as a benefit um, for uh, the different type of uh, products that they offer, whether it be marketplace or um, employer-based uh, offerings. And so it does open up the long-term uh, option for telehealth in the future. So with the change on the payer side, and just to be clear, when we talk about payers, we're talking about the Uniteds, the Blue Crosses, the Select Healths of the World. Um, as we talk about the payer side, you know, it's the insurance companies that we as members interact with. Um, so they were saying, well, we get that you're still going to take that 20 minute visit with this person. And we get that you're still going to ask them all the same questions, but we're going to pay you some number less than if they walked inside your door. That was kind of the problem up front, which Correct. COVID has changed because the payers all said, oh, hold on, we have to change how we do things. Is that kind of a, a good re refresh of what you said? Yes, absolutely. So as you see this, um, what, does, what does a virtual care visit look like? I mean, how does that actually, how does that process work? I'm, you know, how is it not different than being in the office? And how is it different than being in the office? Sure, well, we'll talk about everything from how the patient really enters the visit and how it, the care is provided. And then we'll also bridge into one of the questions that you asked about how does that look and what are the, what are the items that are left out of that visit? Well, it's not items that are left out for the visits that are happening, but there are certain specialties or follow-ups or procedures or things like that that don't lend themselves well to virtual visits. So we'll talk about those. Also to put in there, it is very provider specific. So what one doctor may feel like or provider may feel like is appropriate for the in-person visit, someone else might not be so thrilled with doing that virtually because they don't have the hands-on or the visual with the patient. It's just not quite the same in some areas. And I'll speak a little bit to past experience so that I'm not tossing Granger providers out there uh, and I'll use a discipline, uh, a practice, a specialty that I had in the past that I don't have here to, to use that as an example. And then Adam can talk about the payer source and how we bill and things like that. Does that sound all right? Yeah. Okay, so what happens is the patient still has to check in. And so the patient has to initiate the visit. We can't just call them up and start, you know, calling them on their phone and things like that. There were also the components from the technical side of what is safe? We saw a lot of hacking out there and a lot of avenues where people were taking a little bit of an advantage 
we are right now in a virtual meeting using a product that was widely known for being hacked around the world. So our IT team turned that off very quickly. So we're in Zoom for all of you who are wondering what she's talking about. So. And I'm sure it is safe now. But at the beginning, some hackers took advantage of the Zoom product. So I'll put it out that way. So our IT team uh, beefed up all of the, they were working on the resources anyway to go the, the extra mile for some virtual care, just ramping up for telehealth. So we had that on the back burner, but they implemented it, like I said, within a week. It, it may have been eight days, but it was a business week. Uh, we needed it on a Thursday and we opened telehealth on the next Wednesday. It was phenomenal. And so the patient checks themselves in and we also needed to go in between all of the changing virtual and healthcare landscapes that were going on at the time. So is it allowable by someone's phone? Does it have to be this product or that? Can we use their camera? Can they not be on camera? Can it be just a voice call? And Adam will go into the details of what that looked like from the pair piece because it was very challenging on a daily basis. It seemed like we might get a change early in the morning. And we joked that things were changing every 24 hours, but in fact, we narrowed it down to about every half hour. So we went to 24 hours, a half day, every three hours. And then we said, well, this is the first half of the hour. So a patient checks himself in, the physician receives the call uh, or the physician's team. They bridge the physician together and or the physician takes the call themselves or the provider. And then they launch into the telehealth and it's much just like we're doing now. So if I had a follow-up for let's say a rash. Well, that's a very easy thing for me to hold up the affected area. I actually have some poison sumac going on. So they would be able to say, yeah, if those meds worked, <laughs> I've, I've been doing some, some property cleaning. So I have some sumac. So that would be something that they could see that the medicine is or isn't working or what needed to be done. So that was an easy example of a follow-up. Now I'm gonna use the example I talked about earlier, uh, way about six years ago, I implemented telehealth at another organization and one of the areas, and I don't want to be gross for anyone that's listened to this over lunch, but it is very important. I had a neurology group. We're all about it for follow-ups. It was really helpful, right? But then I had a, um, what do I want, how do I say, it? a wound care clinic. Let's just put it that way. When you're in the hyperbaric chamber and you're have se severe wound care issues, one of the things things that the doctor that I worked with at the time told me when I asked if he wanted to look at wounds and started telehealth was, and I've already said we eat what we kill, so this won't be that gross. He said, no, because I have to smell it. Wow. Right. So wound care is not good for telehealth, according to some physicians. <laughs> There's a lot to a practice that a physician does that we don't know that they subject themselves to. So there we go. Fair um, enough. Now, uh -huh. I'm just really quick and interrupt. The fact that you can do poison sumac cleaning in January in Utah is <laughs> sort of sad, Claire. I mean, I was in Mississippi. No, oh, well, there you go. So <laughs> we have no snow. Right. It was 70, although they're expecting an inch tomorrow, and it is a little like Katie's freezing over. So everybody's wow. buying eight gallons of milk and 400 pounds of rice for that four hours that the sun won't hit the sidewalks. Anyway, <laughs> so that is how um, telehealth works. Patients still register. They still check in. Uh, we still go through the billing process. Adam will cover that in a moment and then talk about the voice calls versus the virtual calls and how the payers really helped us with that. The payers were great, I have to say. They were learning on the fly too. So 
uh, we appreciate the pairs and all that they did. But Adam, do you want to take it from there? Sure. Yeah. So the, the on the still on the provider side a little bit to get to the payer. Um, one of the big things that we did is we just came up with a simple code for our docs to be able to use. And that's the only code that they had to know uh, to make it as less of an administrative burden for them as possible. And so the process for them, it, they use that one code universally and then we know where it goes on, on the backside. Um, for our billing side though, it, it's definitely a little challenging. Uh, there's different places services that we have to use depending on the payer, whether that's a telehealth service um, an audio uh, only visit or even uh, still an office visit is maybe the place of service that they want us to use. And it's different by payer and even particularly by plan for some of the payers. Um, and so our RevCycle team has a master list of all those differences and policies. And, and what's fascinating with it is it's still changing every day now. Um, uh, and, and a lot of it has to do with what payers have tied their policy to the public health emergency and which ones have long-term telehealth plans and, and how those may vary across the lines. Um, and, and then the big difference though too, so for, uh, as Claire was alluding to the, the audio only versus the telehealth, the, the way that the payers were able to help us is prior to uh, COVID, especially with CMS even, um, we were unable to bill audio only visits. Um, and, and there's a lot of things that the docs could still do through an audio only visit. And a lot of them were frustrated because they could not see their uh, elderly patient who may not have the, the capability to connect to a video. Um, and so the only way that they would be able to see them is by telephone. And thankfully all the payers in the market were able to shift that to allow us to be able to do audio only. And that's been a huge change and a huge help for um, our, our, our elderly population, which is um, probably the most vulnerable at this time. And so that, that's been crucial for us as we change this. I'm still just kind of blown away how fast you guys were able to implement something like this. And then like you mentioned before, Claire, just it's changing day to day, right? Or minute by minute, it seemed like at some point. So kind of, you know, Adam, you touched on that. Looking to the future, you know, what is kind of the, a long-term stretch goal for you guys or something that's coming in the pipeline that you're super excited for that you can, that you can share? Yeah, so uh, telehealth has definitely opened up a lot of uh, doors for us. I, I think that there's other programs that we also offer that are at, that, at the home, as Claire talked about before. So our Granger at Home program uh, is another sort of um, connection to the telehealth a little bit. Um, we, we can do some telehealth with that, but we also do have three nurses that go into the home uh, for the patients that are homebound. And, and with those, they really struggle to get to our physical brick and mortar site. And as we kind of look at healthcare and where it's going, um, it's, it's kind of interesting that kind of going back to where it was 60, 70 years ago is really the future. Um, you know, and so having the provider go back to the home, because there's a lot of value in that. So often you could have a patient that comes to you in, a, in office and let's say they are someone who's had a knee replacement, right? And they may tell you, I have no stairs at home. And the first second that you have a, a telehealth visit and you see into their home and you see those four steps, it's like, wait a second, you have stairs at home. And I could see them. Um, and, and so it, it opens up uh, the ability to be able to see into the home, you know, and, and you actually get a chance to um, know the challenges the patient may have at the point in which 
is really going to determine their health outcomes, right? You know, if there's someone who may not be in the best situation, they may hide that to you as a provider, but now you're being able to see that in the home. Um, and so that really shifts how we can help them. We can get them connected with social services and resources that we may not, may not have known that they needed prior to the telehealth or even our Granger at Home visits. So as you talk about Granger at Home, um, I, I think let's change tack just a little from what's COVID done to, you know, care in 2021 and beyond. So Granger at Home, it sounds like you've got some capabilities to identify needs that you couldn't do before. And so what are you doing along those lines, maybe with the Granger at Home or even extending, you know, to other things? Yeah, so, so Granger Home is just, is just one of the things that we're sort of looking at to grow. Um, we, we've expanded that uh, across all of Granger, and so all of our providers are aware that that program exists, which is the first step is getting our own providers to know it's there. Um, but additionally, flagging patients uh, through our, um, our, our health uh, exchange that we have with the Chi. And so with the oh, Chi- Oh, well done. The yeah. chi. I've heard yeah. of the chi. Most people have no idea what the chi no, is no. other than something Chinese and I'm doing yep. Tai Chi. So yeah. So it's a health, health information exchange that we have here in Utah. Um, Granger is able to get access to all of our admissions and discharges at hospitals, as well as some skilled nursing facilities and some patients who may be on other services at uh, long-term acute care hospitals or hospice or or those kind of things as well through that. Um, and through that information exchange, we've been able to uh, flag patients who may be reoccurring uh, admissions at the hospitals. So um, we are able to offer our Granger at Home services, recognizing that, hey, this patient may have had AER visits, but that's because they can't come to our site. And so they can't get to Granger. And the only place that they can get to is an, is an ER. And so we're able to send our Granger at Home nurse out and do an assessment on the patient and see what the needs are and still be able to connect them back with our primary care providers that we have here. So, okay, we've got the Chi, we've got Granger at Home. Mm -hmm. I know you guys have a diabetes program, a diabetes initiative, I'm gonna call it that. Yeah. So talk about that a little. I think sure. it, from what I've heard, it sounds like something that really has the potential to impact uh, really, if I'm newly diabetic, to me, I think is where you see the most bang for your buck. But, you know, somebody that's been diabetic for 25 years and still can't quite get things managed. Um, talk about the diabetes one specifically, and then maybe some other uh, disease states that you could potentially look at. Yeah, so with our, what we call our diabetes protocol, it's, it's not really a, a quote unquote protocol, but it, it does give us sort of different tiers that we can align our diabetic population into. Um, so the first tier that we look at in our population health department is patients who may have, been, may have been diagnosed with diabetes, but they don't have any primary care visit within the past year. And so what we do is we will initiate a contact to that patient and get them reengaged into our primary care uh, location uh, or to their provider or potentially offer them a Granger at home visit as well. Um, and then through that, they would do a, a full diabetic assessment for the patient. Um, the, the second tier with that are patients who may have had a visit with a primary care provider this year, and they had an A1C that was 10 or greater. And with that, we then um, will 
if we don't see that there's another appointment scheduled within the next quarter, we'll go ahead and get that appointment scheduled. And then the third tier with this, this protocol that we have is any patient who's had A1C of 10 or greater twice within the past year, we will then enroll them into our, our diabetes center. And through the diabetes center, they're able to get things such as pump training and diabetes education and nutrition counseling. And it, uh, they're sort of an extender to what was offered in primary care um, and as well as other services that the patient may need, right? It, it could be a resource issue. And so through them, we can also get them connected to our social worker um, and find what the need is for that diabetic patient. And then ultimately try and get them back to the primary care provider is our end goal. Um, and so uh, we found that uh, through the diabetes center, we've actually been able to drastically reduce the A1C levels of the patients that have been enrolled there uh, significantly, um, roughly 20% by the time they go from, you know, the different tierings in the program. Um, and so it, it's been a huge help. As we kind of think about other programs that, and other disease states that you know, we're, we're starting to look at, two things that I'm hoping to both grow and launch within the next year are um, our chronic care management program. Um, and that's one where we will really look at different disease states. So whether that's chronic kidney disease or um, uh, uh, CHF or some of those other disease states that we may not have talked about, um, we're, we're gonna start focusing on those and offering our CCM program. Uh, what we found with chronic care management and just the pilot program we've had so far is it gives patients an opportunity to have another contact to regularly check in with that is almost an extender of the PCP. Um, and so we have a nurse who helps with that program and it's been incredibly successful uh, in reducing readmissions with some of these patients. The patients that we sort of targeted in our pilot were the really sick um, not really affiliated well with Granger and trying to get them to both get to PCP office visits as well as our specialists because a lot of them have multiple disease states that they're dealing with. Um, and so through it, we've been able to reduce the, the readmissions as well as just ER visits that they may have had previously. Got it. So Claire, this is a free suggestion. And I think this is a Claire suggestion, not an Adam suggestion. <laughs> if you give ponies away, I think people <laughs> will become more engaged. <laughs> I, I don't disagree with you. I would go for the full-size horse, but ponies might work. So, I mean, that's just, you know, free suggestion, take it or leave it. So, um, but well, what are, so I want to circle back just a little bit because you've talked about a lot of things and you guys have a lot of resources. Um, and I think you're on the, you know, at least on the leading edge of, you know, what care looks like in 2021 and beyond. Um, as you look at you as a multi-specialty clinic, how are you using that multi-specialtiness? Kind of tie this all up, I guess. How are you taking it from the primary care to the specialist to your protocols? How is that all working together to bring better care to people? And how do you see that medical care in general needs to sort of morph just a little bit to bring better care to people? Is it more annual exams? Is it, I mean, what are we looking at there? I love that question. Thank you. And Adam, please feel free to weigh in. But one of the benefits of Granger, I mentioned this a little earlier on, we have our own ancillary services, right? We also have the ability with the primary care to refer to the specialist and get them in in probably a shorter amount of time than they might in another entity, right? So if I show up and I have a di you know, diabetic issue, I have not seen a primary care provider. Well, Adam and his team 
And then because of the size of Granger and the collaboration between departments, he can bridge the gap with the manager who needs to get the appointment for the patient to be with the primary care and established. That person can work with Adam's team to make sure that the, the patient follows up and actually returns for the visit. Because this is new to a patient without a primary care provider. They, they don't, it's a lack of knowledge in how this primary care provider may enhance their lifestyle, right? So getting this under control, well, I may have a lot of other issues too. I might have a breathing issue or sleep apnea. Well, they might need a sleep test, right? So we can get them into the sleep doctor in a reasonable amount of time. There's not a lot of red tape because we can work amongst the departments. So the manager of the primary care is connected to the manager of the sleep and lung clinic. We have two different sleep centers and multiple pulmonologists, right? So we can do all of that. They may need a cardiologist so they can see Dr. Brown. So the ability for the primary care to function and get the whole person taken care of is a big deal. This bleeds out into the family. So if Adam works with a male and he has a diabetic issue and he has a pregnant wife or a significant other, she may not have a primary uh, OB. She may not be utilizing primary care either. So we're able to get in front of the care that the family needs and really encircle them. It's a holistic process. It's not about one individual, but one individual affects their family and their friends and others. So this collaborative effort that we have amongst Granger we all have each other's cell phones. It is not uncommon for Adam or me to say, you know, I was just with Adam in a meeting, call one of the operations managers in a clinic and say, we have a dire need for a patient and get them in within the amount of time that provides that optimal care. Adam, what do you want to add to that? Uh, I think that was a great synopsis of, of you know, how we're connected. And I, I think the diabetes protocol is a great example of it, you know, where we're, we're taking a patient who, you know, a, a PCP may have uh, challenges with through the diabetes and getting them to the diabetes center for that extended care uh, that the patient may, may need that's just focusing on the diabetes and not their 10 or 20 other chronic conditions they may be dealing with. Um, and so utilizing the, the specialists um, and integrating them sort of within the, the, the PCP realm is also an important uh, step with a lot of this. Got it. Well, I, I think that works. I mean, thank you for your time. Um, genuinely appreciate it. Uh, Miles, well, I forgot to do something up front. And the biking story. The biking story, exactly right. I had to call Chris out on the, the private chat here and say, what the heck, Chris? <laughs> but um, so we have to have the most important question. It's probably they're going to be the hardest one of the day. But uh, we want to hear from both you, Adam and Claire. You know, a, a biking story, and Claire, when we talked before, um, you said, well, biking might not be the thing, and you said he had a special one for us. I'm excited to hear that, but Adam, for you, we'll let you start off, you know, favorite biking story growing up or just something recently, and, you know, if it's involved with two wheels, motorcycle, dirt bike, something like that, we'll take that as well. Gosh, um, I would say that the one that sort of sticks out to me may not be my favorite, but it was how I found out that I was allergic to wasps. Um, I was, uh, that's a great lead in by the way, Adam. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, you know, good to know when you need your EpiPen. Um, and so I, uh, I actually went on a, a 10 mile bike ride with a couple friends and, and, uh, ended up hitting a wasp nest really close to a river. 
which thankfully the river was there because I was able to get into water and get out, uh, you know, get away from the wasps. But um, that's probably my most interesting biking story that I have. Uh, yeah, it ended up being, I think it was 50 stingers they took out of me when I got to Whoa. the dock about two hours later and, and thankfully did not go into anaphylactic shock or any of that good stuff that could have happened. I don't know that that's allergic as just as like an overdose. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's definitely an interesting story. So, wow. Any story where you can say I escaped wasps by diving into the raging inferno kind of thing. Yeah. Claire, that's a hard one to follow up. We should have probably started with you. I would like to just be omitted. Mine is not exciting. I was nine. <laughs> No, you at least got to tell us something. I mean, that's just sort of the deal. Okay. So. I grew up in a small town in rural Mississippi. There were 900 people at the time, and there still are. Death verse, it doesn't affect that town. There's still 900 people, <laughs> as uh, exhibited on the water billing system, right? So I grew up in this small town. There were, it, at the time, it was the 70s. There was a good main street. There was a bank the grocery store, you know, the hardware store, the co-op, things like that. And there was one school in town and I went to that school and we were selling raffle tickets for, I don't know, barbecue, whatever. So I was a good A student in the fourth grade and I got to have my lunch hour to go sell tickets. And it was a big deal in my school, that was our fundraiser. So I drove my little blue bicycle downtown to the main street. My grandfather had a barber shop there. My grandmother was a librarian. So I drove my bicycle down there. And when I got home, you know, there were no cell phones in 79. That's the year this was, I have not forgotten it. Uh, the bank teller had seen me ride my bike backwards down a one-way street and had called my mom to let her know I had violated the traffic laws. Oh, hey, that yeah. is a good story. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes, they are faster than cell phones. That, <laughs> yes, the network there had reported me and my traffic violation, and I did get in trouble for it and had to review how to ride a bike in town, along with how it's opposite than the walking path, where you know you ride a bike with traffic, you walk facing traffic to be safe in that town of 900 people. Yes. Oh, so I have a I have a task for the three of you and anybody listening to this. Watch Greece, and it's the epitome <laughs> of the small town phone system. Yes, it is. I was not allowed to date the boy with the cigarettes rolled up in his white t-shirt. I kind of missed that era by about fifteen years, maybe twenty. And yeah, we didn't have the little, you know, car hop. We didn't have a fast food restaurant, but other than that, you got it. Yeah. So, well, Adam, Claire, genuinely appreciate the time. Um, I'm excited to see how primary care morphs and evolves and how COVID has kind of pushed that and, and the things that we can do. Um, I think that we've got the ability to really impact care in a very positive way moving forward. And, and it's neat to hear how you guys are on the, the forefront of all of that. So, um, so thank you for your time. And with that, Miles, are we done? We are good. Appreciate both of you. Have, uh, have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Thank you. It was our pleasure. You'll see all of the new initiatives Adam and his team are driving. They do a great job. So thanks for having us.